A thank you to our sponsors, the For Us, By Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color, that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to In the Pocket. Uh, I'm your host, Flo Edwards, and our special guest today is Ophelia Hugh Kinney. She is a worship coordinator at Hope Gateway, and she's also a director of communications at the Reconciling Ministries Network. Please, Ophelia, introduce yourself. Thanks so much for having me, Flo. Uh, let's see. I moved to Maine maybe five or six years ago now. I live in Scarborough with my wife, dog, and two cats for now. And um, I am a writer and communicator at heart. Um, I am happy to be here in Maine. You know, it took me a little while to be able to say that. Um, but now that I, I live here and I'm committed to living here, I am glad to be here. Um, I'm a person who grew up in an agnostic atheist household and um, have had quite a journey of becoming a, a Christian person, um, especially because there are a lot of misunderstandings between people of faith and queer and trans people. Um, so that's a little bit about me. So becoming into um, a religion as an adult um, what were some of your, what made you fall in love with Christianity? You know, I, that's a great question, Flo, and I wouldn't really be able to encapsulate it in a short conversation, but I'll do my best. And I think what it is, is that since I was a younger person, I just wanted to have some answers to some questions, you know, big questions that we're all thinking about as as humans. And... Uh, what I came to, to love about the kind of Christianity that I was introduced to was the utter lack of answers and the sense that you're on this journey of accumulating more and more questions and you can choose to be in community with other people to try to affix some meaning to this life um, or you can do it alone but I chose the route that um, that had some other journeyers on the road. Um, I also, I think, 
had a realization when I was a young adult that um, who the person of Jesus was is so different from who Christians are. And that really liberated a lot of um, understandings of organized religions for me. So what's the big differences or a big difference between who Jesus was and who Christians are? Um, When I was a younger person, especially as somebody who knew that she was queer from a young age and came out to her community at a young age, I think that my conception of Christians were that they were, um, at least my experience of them was that they were a largely hypocritical, judgmental, like hostile group of people. And to be totally honest, I'm not sure that that definition has changed that much if I think about the loudest and most moneyed voices in Christianity. But what was so different to me um, was encountering this like really radical countercultural person who, um, you know, lived his life in a way that wasn't just about what he was against, um, but somebody who had this really incredible vision for what life and what community could be. Um, And I, you know, there are a lot of like Christ-like figures in our everyday people that are in our families and friend circles and our communities and in the larger world. Um, And I think that connecting that sense of awe um, about who Jesus was to the sense of awe that I feel for so many people who are doing Christ-like work, in my opinion, today. Um, that's that's kind of a hinging factor for me on the difference between like this amorphous group of Christians um, and this person that is so captivating. I like how you said Christ-like work. What does that mean? Um, gosh, you asked some really good questions. So Christ-like work, I think it's contextual, you know? I mean, I think that the church that I belong to, Hope Gateway in Portland, did some pretty Christ-like work in the last couple of years. Um, we used to belong to the United Methodist Church, which um, is one of the largest global denominations of Christians, and um, they were slated to become more queer and trans-affirming. But Um, long story short there have been some really deep pockets and like very powerful special interests working to make sure that like racial justice and justice for LGBTQ people in the church doesn't happen in mainline um, Christian denominations and that same work has been going on in the United Methodist Church so things have taken a turn for the more exclusive and more anti-queer and anti-trans And so um, our church faced a decision about, you know, who we wanted to be affiliated with and what we wanted to be known for. And we undertook this maybe almost 18 month long process of discernment where we sat down with the questions, with the people um, and with more and more knowledge um, and said like, look, what do we want to be known for? Who is Hope Gateway going to be? And I think some of the Christ-like work that we had to do was not just in our our end decision, which was to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church and also pay the price that came along with that. But um, some of the Christ-like work I think that we did before that was 
um, being able to hold one another's pain and like religious trauma and also people's different senses of what it meant to be a Christian all in tension together and say like we're still we're still gonna figure out a way to be family together and we're gonna figure out a way how to love each other damn it because this is all we've got like all we've got is each other and this like sense of spiritual um like nourishment that holds us together so that's one example um i also think like you know some of the christ-like work that people are doing in the portland area includes you know fighting for more livable wages fighting for places for people to live in an equitable way um expanding space for marginalized persons and i think that's work that jesus did when he was alive um and i really don't see that he was the kind of person who you know put up anti people experiencing homelessness architecture or like you know taxed people ridiculously who don't have as much income um that's, I think, some of the Christ-like work that's going on. Well said. Thank you. Um, I was curious as to, you said that there is a, a price paid for your church separating from the United Methodist branch. Can you go into detail about that? What sure, yeah. So the literal price tag was that we had to pay about $300,000 to leave. And we're not, you know, a large or rich um, congregation. So for us, that was really a leap of faith to say, you know, it's worth it to pay this amount of money to say queer and trans people who are in the church right now and who aren't in the church, but just want to know that there are folks out there fighting transphobia and queerphobia. Like that's, that's a price worth paying. Um, but beyond that, it also meant that for example, our pastor had to lose her like collegial community, the people that she and her family had grown to like be beloved in. Um, they lost all that. And, um, you know, we for a lot of people who grew up in the United Methodist Church, it's almost like the sense of heritage. Like you talk about your grandparents, your parents all being United Methodist and like so-and-so and your family being clergy. And so I think for those folks, there was a sense of losing heritage or losing a sense of belonging, of what happens in the calendar year, of all of that. And that's not to say that we gave up some of the stuff that we we believe in um that is a result of that tradition but you know we're kind of like thrust out into the wilderness now trying to decide like who do we want to affiliate ourselves with now and so the the price was monetary and it was also a sense of community um and i think it cost us in that it was a series of really hard conversations um but i think what we gained from it were this ability to um, to be okay with ourselves as a congregation, to know that like what we say we stand for and what we are actually putting our money behind line up with each other. And I think that it was a really formative, like gluing experience for the people in the congregation. 
Thank you for sharing that. I did not think it was actually going to be a monetary price. So. <laughs> oh, it was. Yeah. It is. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. So I also wanted to know, uh, have you worked in other churches before you were at this church? I haven't. Um, so when my wife Haley and I moved to Maine, um, we were really set on wanting to find a, a church where like queer affirmation was just so foundational, so in the rear view, like totally settled, um, and nobody had to talk about it. And Hope Gateway was one of those places. There are a lot of other places in the Portland area like that, um, but Hope Gateway is the found, is the place that we found. Um, we had both been people who, when we were in college campus ministry and things like that, were, um, you know, we saw ourselves as like people who wanted to be in charge, people who wanted to lead um, or serve the church. And we ended up belonging to a lot of churches before Hope Gateway, where we couldn't do that because we're both queer. Um, you know, people would say things like, thanks for coming, you could, you can attend, but you can't be a member. Or you can be a member, but you can't lead. Um, you can, you know, lead in this small way, but you can't teach. So um, suffice it to say, no, we hadn't really, um, at least as like out queer people. Before then, sure, we could be in the closet and, and lead in different ways, but um, we were purposeful when we moved to Maine, wanting to find a place where we could use all the um, all the skills and, and time that we had um, that wouldn't be questioned. I'm glad you found a space where you you and your wife can spread your wings. Thanks, me too. So, had you had any other adult jobs before you were working in in the church? Yeah. So I worked, I've worked in the nonprofit world my whole life. And um, my work at Hope Gateway is part-time. Um, and my day job is that I, I work in the nonprofit world. Um, I at Reconciling Ministries Network. I'm there full-time. Um, I work in communications. And my work experience prior to that has mostly like orbited around the world of written communications. Um, I am just really in love with this wrestling that happens when you're trying to translate experiences of existence, especially like of being a marginalized person for people to understand. Um, and also to try and translate experiences of, uh, I mean, I can, between you and me and our audience, I can probably say this, but like, I can try and translate experiences of ignorance or like unknowing um, to people who, you know, might write off entire groups of people as enemies. Um, so I really love that work. I um, I think that growing up in predominantly white um, places and you know growing up in this kind of third culture um, between my parents' culture and then you know, mainstream American culture. Um, I think that's kind of prepared me for this work. So it feels like second nature to me. 
I like how you describe the the third culture, and I also like how you are translating, because um, I often think of myself as assimilating, but I like how you said translating. That's a different dimension. I really enjoy that. So have you written a lot as a kid as well? I mean, like poetry, or have you just been doing translations? Oh gosh, I don't know. I think that most writing is an act of translation, even if like it's not literal translating, you know? I mean, you're either a person just translating your own lived experience into fiction or nonfiction, or you're trying to translate, you know, experiences of groups of people or um, experiences of identity, um, lived experiences into something that somebody else can begin to comprehend. Um, I do a lot of fiction writing and um, I'm working on a book right now and at the same time, I don't know, I, I just really love everyday, like, everyday writing of what it means to like get people engaged in this like LGBTQ justice work that's church related. But um, the novel that I'm working on is rather personal, um, but it isn't a memoir. But essentially it's the story of um, a daughter, a teenage daughter and her mother that are both keeping secrets from one another. And um, the, the daughter is queer. And that's her big secret that she's keeping from her mother, and she doesn't she doesn't know that her mother is also keeping a big secret from her as well. So um, I think that um, there's this like fantastic plethora of Asian American voices in literature like, booming right now, and probably also in film and on TV. Um, and I think it's a a great reminder to me when I see more and more of these stories being told that there are so many different kinds of Asian American stories and mine doesn't have to fit into any one trope. Um, so I hope that um, this is just one of so many other like queer, young Asian American stories to come. Awesome. Um, I think about when people are beginning their writing journey and since I've never written a novel, when you are writing a novel, do you kind of like have an outline and you already know what the ending is and then you're just filling it in or tell us about that? Oh gosh, I'm sure it's different for everyone. Um, and for me, it's probably different from project to project. I really love um, short story and I think that it's such a neat way to like to get a message across. But what I'm finding in this novel is that as much as I set out with this idea that this was the ending that I wanted, this was the premise I wanted, um, having to wrestle with the characters and make them seem alive has forced me to make a lot of left turns. So I'm, I'm realizing as I'm filling out the scenes and um, as I'm giving life to characters that like the the people, kind of like real people, really take you for a surprise. Like you just gotta hold on for the ride and see where they end up taking you. I like that hold on for the ride. They kind of create themselves <laughs> in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Um, when I was doing a little research on you, I came across this resist harm or hashtag resist harm. Um, I don't know if you're still doing that campaign. If you, even if you aren't, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So resist harm is um, an organized effort by folks from around the United Methodist Church to try to. Um, it is doing exactly what it says. It's asking folks within the church to resist the harm of the denomination. So um, that's mostly a campaign linked to what I do uh, in my day work at Reconciling Ministries Network. And it's a fantastic campaign by people who don't have like any official group or any funding. It's just people of conscience who said, look, what happened in 2019 that made the denomination so much worse for queer and trans people, we're gonna try to resist that as much as possible. What had happened then was a lot of the loopholes that existed to make it so that queer and trans people could be a fuller part of the church had been closed off, um, like because of legislative um, advancements. So um, it ended up leaving a lot of queer and trans people feeling like they were trapped um, in their denomination or if they were becoming clergy, which is a long process. They were trapped in that process. And um, some other legislative measures came up um, that we still have yet to vote on. And COVID has prevented this global um, conference from meeting. But um, our hope is to pass legislation that can at least for the moment stop the bleeding, which means um, not bringing charges up against queer and trans people just for being queer and trans and clergy, um, not defrocking clergy for doing same-sex weddings, um, not, you know, punishing people for spending money from their churches doing educational efforts to just teach people good things about queer and trans people. So these are all things that are like legislatively you're not allowed to do them um and resist harm is a campaign that has taken a foothold across the world um saying we're gonna we're gonna make sure that as much as we can on our watch we're not gonna let these terrible things happen to the queer trans people um in our locales so um, it equips people with liturgy that they can use in their churches to try to change people's hearts and minds uh, it includes petitions and like actions that people can take at their local jurisdictional and bishops offices. Um, it includes a lot of different ways for people to be in protest um, of the policy that's currently in place. Well, thank you for sharing that. I didn't yeah, know. For- yeah, I, I didn't realize it was uh, solely kind of a religious religious movement within. Um, organized religion so that queers and trans can be protected better. So that's cool. You are, yeah. yeah. You are also a board member of the ECC, the Equality Community Center. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, how long have you been on the board? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So my tenure on the board is super young still. I only started there in March or May of this year. I can't remember, but um, the Equality Community Center is um, currently at 511 Congress Street in Portland. 
and uh, they're about to move to 15 Casco Street, which is a property that they've just um, bought and are currently renovating. The ECC basically is, um, we, we like to think of it as like a house um, for uh, organizations that are doing queer and trans justice seeking, as well as individuals who just want to have a place to be. So um, right now, it is currently home to, I think, five organizations in the Portland area. I know Equality Maine, and therefore Sage Maine, um, Maine Transnet, um, Portland Pride, and I know I'm missing a few others, but um, they all have permanent space at the Equality Community Center. Um, and that has been our phase one of existence is getting organizations under one roof and providing a place for people to be. And we also started partnering with Candies, um, which does like the programming arm of all the stuff that the ECC does. So when it moves over to 15 Casco Street, um, we're gonna start um, you know, widening that umbrella to organizations that aren't like explicitly focused on queer and trans um, issues, but also, um, you know, kind of adjacent justice organizations. So you might have some community-based ethnic organizations getting space there, um, just other like progressive movement partners. And the hope is that like we're all in one place, we can do so much collaboratively. Um, and it's also going to be a place where people can just hang out. You know, if you need a place to get out of the hot um, summer or you just need a place to take shelter in the winter during the daytime, um, our hope is that the ECC can be that place, that it'll be a place where, you know, people who are sober can come and enjoy a third place. Um, and then there'll also be places for people who want to have a drink to do that too. Um, but yeah, our hope is that it's just going to be a safe and inviting place um, for all kinds of people who um, just want to see LGBTQ folks thrive. And um, that, in, you know, that includes people of color, that includes people experiencing homelessness, and you know, a lot of other people who kind of feel like sometimes they're on the margins. Um, the ECC is purpose to serve organizations that touch folks all over the state although it is based here in Portland. Um, so we understand that's a limitation in our programming, but the, the organizations that are based at the ECC do um, impact people all over the state. Oh, well said. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us, Ophelia. Uh, what's the plug? How can people reach you? Sure. Um, People can reach me at opheliahookinney.com and um, there's a way there to get in touch with me. And if you want to check out who we are at Hope Gateway, you can go to hopegateway.com. You can email me, ophelia at hopegateway.com. Um, but yeah, would love to be in touch with any of the listeners out there today. Great. I just want to just give out the spelling. So Ophelia Hugh Kenny is... Um, O-P-H-E-L-I-A-H-U-K-I-N-N-E-Y. That's great. great. Thanks so much. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's, I don't think most people do. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs>
A thank you to our sponsors, the For Us, By Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. Thank you to our sponsor, Rising Tide Brewing. They take time and pride in giving back to the greater Portland community. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, Look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show.